2: Welcome once again to Star Trek The Pod Directive. I am one of your hosts, Paul F. Tompkins.
3: I am the other one of your hosts. I am Tawny Newsome. Oh, we're back. We got another episode for you. Oh, this one was really, I I really enjoyed this talk because I really enjoyed kind of the episode that it's sort of centered around. Paul, I know it's a favorite of yours.
2: I love this episode and um, it was great to hear somebody like Reza Aslan talking about it in such a scholarly and in-depth way. It was really fun.
3: Yeah. I felt like I got tickets to like a cool lecture or something. I was like, Oh, I'm like listening to some kind of hip Ted talk that has to do with Star Trek and language <laughs> and religion. And
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. It was great to hear what Reza explored in terms of the themes of uh, myth of religion of storytelling and just how societies relate to one another, it's fascinating.
3: Yeah, the way he really breaks down language, and also there's uh, a couple funny quips about the Universal Translators that I think you guys will enjoy. (laughs) If you've ever struggled with the concept of the Universal Translators in all of Star Trek, I think you'll enjoy Reza's little take on them. But yeah, just having someone so intelligent about language break down how we communicate through symbols and metaphor as it relates to this episode, uh, taught me a lot and was really entertaining. Mm
2: -hmm. And interesting thoughts about uh, religion in terms of will it be present in the far, far future in terms of the utopian Star Trek society. It was was a great conversation. And he's very hip, but people should know that he was sitting on his chair backwards the whole time we talked to him.
3: Yeah, he had real youth pastor vibes, just ripped (laughs) jeans, slicked back hair. (laughs) Tony, this is
2: not my first time interviewing Reza Aslan. I- interviewed him once before on a show that I hosted that was a news program, a parody news program that featured puppets from the Henson Company.
3: Oh, I'm fully familiar with No, You Shut Up. <laughs> I right. When Paul and I first became friends, that was how I kind of got to know him because we started working <laughs> together. And I was like, huh, let me see what this guy's, what, what what his whole vibe is about outside of the normal like podcasty things I knew you from. <laughs> and watching that show Blew my mind. It was basically like a uh, like a daily show or like an at the time, like a Colbert rapport, but <laughs> with puppets right. that you just berated and shouted at. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's right. We did not get along. <laughs> a, very, a very contentious relationship with all the puppets, specifically the talking hot dog. Uh-huh. <laughs> but uh, for some unknown reason, Reza came on that show <laughs> and was interviewed by puppets.
3: Now, as listeners of this show might know, because we talked about it before, uh, we recorded all of these interviews a long time ago in approximately um, 1800 BC. Yeah, um, in
2: the before times. So
3: in the before times, in the before corona. Um, so I don't remember if you and Reza talked about that in the booth.
2: We did not. <laughs> you didn't bring it up. I don't think it came up. He was talking to me as if we had met before, but he didn't. I don't know if he remembered where.
3: Sure. Well, I can imagine that happens for folks like both of you where you're like, yeah, I know this guy. And you're not actually sure if you've met before or you just know of each other's work.
2: Well, you know, I feel like if puppets were around, I would remember that's where I met that person. <laughs>
3: that's a good point. Actually, now that I think of it, I remember anyone who was in any proximity of me being around a puppet. I, I would I would remember that person. <laughs>
2: This is your great gift, is yeah. that you You can always tell if people have been close to puppets.
3: Yeah. Some people remember faces. Some people have like a <laughs> photographic memory. I'm like, if there's a puppet around, I'm remembering every person who was in attendance. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is delightful. And what an opposite type of conversation you must have had on that show to the one that we have here.
2: Indeed. Indeed. But uh, Reza is Reza always. He's a lot of fun. Like he takes this stuff seriously, but he does have a sense of humor and he likes to bring, you know, the, the topics that he enjoys and studies, he likes to bring them to life. And he you can tell that he's really into the stuff that he's talking about.
3: Oh yeah. And he does a cool thing. I, I've done, forgive me, I've done so much like lower decks press lately that I've been saying mm-hmm. this about Mike McMahon, showrunner for Lower Decks. A similarity that they both have is that uh they're both very passionate about topics, but they are instead of being disdainful of you for not knowing things on the (laughs) same level as them, they are excited to share. Mm -hmm. So you all will hear in this episode, um, moments where I just flat out don't know things or don't even have a frame of reference for what Rez is talking about. And he is like a giddy, like, this is what all those movies about like a passionate teacher turning around a surly bunch of students (laughs) felt like, cause I was just sitting there like learning and becoming inspired to learn more. Um, it's very infectious, his energy.
2: I remember I was, I, I had taken out my pocket knife and I was carving stuff in the table <laughs> and he started talking. You were talking a bad kid. I was, look, I was who I was. And he turned me around.
3: Now that's why you are a podcaster to this day. It's because of him. <laughs> that's right. We need one of those movies that's like, oh, she took a bunch of ragtag mean kids from the streets and inspired them to podcast. <laughs>
2: Hey, what's up, everybody? This is the Mean Kids Podcast. Uh, we we broke more stuff at school today. Uh, a couple toilets uh, set fire to a trash can.
3: Yeah, I uh, yelled at my neighbor across the street, then hid behind a bush so she didn't know who was insulting her. Pretty rad stuff like that.
2: Please like and subscribe.
3: <laughs> I love that this is what we think of as being mean, when actually, like kids right now are awful demons sometimes. <laughs> but <laughs> our mean stuff is so G-rated. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: we're just operating from the movies, not not the horrific real life of teenagers. That's a new series that I'm working on.
3: The horrific real life of teenagers? Sounds upbeat. <laughs> it's more fun than you think it is. Oh, uh, well, speaking of as much fun as you think <laughs> it is, because we've told you how much fun it's going to be. You like that segue? I love it. Uh-huh. We're going to take a little brief break. And then uh, when we come back, you will hear our interview with Reza Oslan.
0: Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, wherever you get your podcasts. From the world of Sonic the Hedgehog, a new hero arrives. I am ready. ready. Is there anyone stronger? No. Ha! Tougher? No. Funnier? I do not make jokes, I make warriors. Knuckles, now streaming only on Paramount Plus. Yes!
2: Today we have an interview with author and scholar Reza Aslan about religion and Star Trek.
3: He's the author of numerous best-selling books on religions and religious history, including Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth, and his latest book, God, A Human History.
2: He hosts the podcast Metaphysical Milkshake, along with actor Rain Wilson, who of course played Harry Mudd on Star Trek Discovery.
3: And last but not least, he's a Star Trek fan. Yay, welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yes, absolutely. I don't think
1: fan's the right word. Oh, I feel like fan, you know, like I'm a football fan. Are you saying you're a Star Trek I, stan? <laughs> I'm a trekker. I'm a, I'm a trekker. I'm a full-fledged, a full-fledged, trekker. full-fledged well, trekker. We have I, no choice but to stand this I delineation. <laughs> Let me put it this way. On on multiple occasions, I have dressed in the outfit. Hell yeah. For various reasons. Yeah. Some, yeah, yeah. Sometimes just alone in my room. Okay. Who, who's your go to? Who you, who you cosplaying as? Oh, I'm always the captain. I can't be any, I can't, like, who else would I be? That's ridiculous. Humble. Yeah.
2: <laughs> no less than yeah. four circles. Yeah. Oh, so, my yeah. God. Uh,
3: so, wait, wait, wait. You always dress as a captain. Any specific captain? All the captains? Yeah, what era? What are you talking?
1: got? No, I mean, I, I, I definitely dress – when I dress, I dress definitely uh, next generation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, yes, I do have the red captain's uniform. Right. But to say I'm dressed as Picard is absurd. That's like saying, you know, uh, uh, for Halloween, I'm going as Jesus. Like, no, I'm not, you know – Like, uh, even I have, you know, some uh, sense of propriety when it comes to that. Yeah. Yeah. So, Ralloween, you'd go as a messiah. Yes, (laughs) exactly. Not the messiah, but, you know, general, general messiah. Uh, TNG, was your your way into Trek? I I definitely was into the original series, no Mm. question about it. I mean, I watched it, obviously, in reruns. I think it's important to understand. So, I, I didn't know English until I was about, like, eight. Mm -hmm. Uh, My family came here from Iran uh, at 7. I didn't speak a word of English. You know, I spent the first year or so of my life uh, in America basically cloistered in the house watching nonstop television, which was Mm. a completely new thing for us. I mean, we had TV in Iran, two channels, mostly news. Um, Do you have any good
3: Iranian sitcoms No, (laughs) there was nothing good. There was nothing good
1: on TV at all. And then when my sister and I came to America— and we turned the TV on. We were like, what? And the TV, first and foremost, taught me English. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I was fluent, you know, within about five, six months. Mm-hmm. And then I had no accent at all within a within a year. But also TV taught me about America, like what America was, mm-hmm. you know. Like I had didn't know anything about race relations until I watched, you know, the Jeffersons. And, you know, I didn't know anything about the California highway system until I watched Chips. And that, (laughs) to this day, I have like a general fear of like cars flipping and blowing up for no no reason. Just you're driving along the freeway and then suddenly there's a ramp and you jump, you know, 50 feet in the air, which is... Ridiculous. Yeah, these
3: might have been flawed scholarly yeah. texts for you to learn about race my, relations on the highways. My, my
1: entire sense of humor is a bit predicated on Bugs Bunny episodes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and then it was that original series, uh, Star Trek, that really you know just awoke my passions. So I was a fan already. Mm-hmm. In fact, I was enough of a fan that when they started promoting the Next Generation, I was like, bullshit. What is this bullshit? Like, you can't, you can't redo Star Trek.
3: So you are like every fan Boy, now. Who, was I wrong? Every new thing that comes out, they're like, that's not Trek. And then later, they're like, actually, this is the best. Yeah, series. I personally <laughs> love
1: Discovery. Yeah, I I've, absolutely love yeah, it. Yeah,
2: I remember that feeling though, because I my introduction to Star Trek was TOS, and I watched it in reruns when I was a kid, and I remember being old enough when. TNG was coming out, and having kind of a similar feeling yeah. like, that who seems do they weird. think they are? Because at that point, the, the original cast was doing the movies and everything, and exactly. it just seemed like a crazy idea. Also,
1: <laughs> what's with the fucking accent? Mm. <laughs> they, yeah, well, what, you know, like mm-hmm. what? What is this? That's not. <laughs> yeah, the captain doesn't have an accent. <laughs> what is this bullshit? <laughs>
3: I love the idea Iranian? of a, a, a young Iranian can be mad yeah. Yeah. it. Just, <laughs> a white, it should sound like accent. me. Why does he <laughs> sound regular? <laughs>
1: uh, and then of course, boy, how wrong we all were. Yeah. Because, oh. yeah. I mean, obviously, obviously the the climax of the Star Trek universe for me still is the yeah. next generation. No yeah. question.
3: Okay, so uh, you are clearly a fan. Does your fandom extend to things like message boards, forums? Do you have, like, a pseudonym online where you can go on and, like, uh, I don't know, troll people about (laughs) how much your version
1: of Trek is better than everyone else's knowledge? No, but that's just because I don't like people. Sure. Um, it's It has nothing to do with my fandom. I have, however, been to a convention. Mm -hmm. I have been to a convention, and— I did not dress up for the convention because I was nervous. I was like, you know what? It's a lot of just an, yeah. yeah, I think I'll just wear just shorts and a t-shirt. I'm mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. But uh, I clearly, I have uh, fond fond memories. I got to see data in person, which was exciting.
2: And apparently, I've never seen him in person, but he's
1: apparently very entertaining at those panels. And oh, yeah, yeah, you know, he, he took it very seriously. Doing he impressions was of people, it. and oh yeah. You know, yeah, 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 that's yeah. That's very yeah. cool. But that's that's as close as I've come to to sort of immersing myself uh, in in the world. Yeah,
3: sure. It's a big world to immerse it's yourself a big world. in.
1: I am endlessly entertained by that and the the artistry and
2: skill that people put into recreating the especially the more obscure characters. <laughs> right. so, you know, somebody that appeared in one episode. You know, I I, I love it every time.
3: Yeah. yeah, a lot of fun. So now you're obviously a scholar of religion. Mm-hmm. Um, aspects of Trek that are particularly interesting to you? Is all of it interesting to you? Does it all relate to religion in some way or another? I'm sure you could talk about this at length, but <laughs> in kind of a broad strokes, like what what is the most pertinent part of Trek that pertains to religion to you?
1: Well, I think both in the original series and the the Next Generation, there was this really fascinating idea about anthropology, right, which kind of permeated the episodes. I mean, obviously, they're going off to all these distant planets and, and coming across all these new species. And so, you know, you have this opportunity to watch the, you know, aliens from other worlds kind of create civilization and and you get to see sort of their belief systems and, and the way that they function. For, you know, somebody who gets off on that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was all super interesting, super exciting. But then, when they decided to make the captain of the Enterprise an anthropologist, mm-hmm. <laughs> like literally, like they're like, oh, he's just gonna be an archaeologist, but who's also a captain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm sorry, did you make this for me? Yeah. <laughs> did you write, like? Is this a, some kind of fantasy that I'm that I'm experiencing right now? Because yeah. I like to think of myself as part scholar, part captain. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that. <laughs> you know, that's your cosplay. That's, that's your definitely my cosplay. captain. <laughs> Um, <laughs> skull cow. and and the fact that from the very beginning, they made that part of his persona, right? Mm-hmm. That he had all these ancient artifacts. And, you know, he always had a different perspective and the commitment that Picard had to mm-hmm. the prime directive. and i and I get that I think it bothered a lot of the audience members. and sometimes it came across as a little bit pedantic and a little bit, you know, you know, it was so precious to him, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And even in moments in which the consequences were disastrous, but as someone trained in those disciplines, I got off on it. Mm -hmm. I was like, holy shit, like this is exactly right. Of course you don't interfere, right? That's like the first rule of anthropology Mm -hmm. is you do not interfere in in the community that you are studying. Mm -hmm. And to have that in a sci-fi genre with life or death consequences, I mean, you know, it was it was like a, a fantasy for geeks like me. Yeah, you know, like yeah. double geeks. Yeah, well, double it,
2: geeks. It's that it's that uh, that great added tension of, you know, the captain is uh, he's they've made him an extremely curious person. I love a mystery and all that stuff. But at the same time, rules are rules, and these rules are there for a reason. You know, how can we do what we need or want
1: to do without messing anything yeah. up? You know, And then in subsequent seasons, of course, they start putting that into the plots, right? They start giving Picard an opportunity to actually put his skills as an archaeologist, as an yeah. amateur anthropologist into play— You know, in episodes in which there are literally life or death consequences to the knowledge that he has, you know, the decisions that he makes. Those are the episodes that are obviously my... My go-to favorites.
3: Speaking of your favorite episode, uh, the TNG episode, Darmok, is often spoken about as one of the best episodes of the series. Paul, I believe you said that you think it's one of the best episodes of television. One of my favorite hours of television. Yep. I, it's It's incredible. extremely
1: imaginative and it's mm-hmm. executed so well. It's uh, it's a really enjoyable episode. My number one, number one favorite Star Trek Universe episode, absolutely. It
3: introduces an alien species, the Temerians, who are noted for speaking in metaphors which are indecipherable to the universal translator that we know our TNG crew all uses to understand all the various species they encounter. Captain Picard is abducted by the Temerian captain, played by the incredible Paul Winfield, to the surface of a planet, and they have to try and figure out how to communicate. And so this clip is uh, that moment where Picard starts to crack the code. (sighs)
0: Uzani, his army with fist open. His army with fist closed. An army with fist open to lure the enemy with fist closed to attack. That's how you communicate, isn't it? By by citing example,
1: by metaphor. Listening to that, I was thinking to myself, going back to the conversation that we just had, like that can come from you know some 18th century british colonialist mm. a- and and some far flung island you know in like new guinea mm-hmm. or whatever trying to figure out the the population i mean except in this case there's a you know gigantic monster trying trying right. to kill yeah. them you know <laughs> right. um yeah, I mean, for for a religion geek like me, I was watching this, going, "What? This is can't be happening! This is the most exciting moment of my of my life right now." <laughs> watching watching these worlds suddenly intersect.
3: Yeah, I felt that way too. I'm not a religion geek, but I just a studier of languages. And I mean, I've always been like an actor, so I just like language and watching them parse out the difference between you know how imagery relates to the Tumerians versus how. Picard uses it. It was it was incredible. It's yeah, and also
2: for the show itself to have this one simple thing be subverted, mm-hmm. like it, we've never seen this before. Where it's just like we do not know yeah. <laughs> our things don't work. <laughs> yeah, you know, we have no idea what they're saying. And into those initial scenes where they're talking to each other on the bridges of each other's ships, and they're mm-hmm. just like, I don't know.
0: Yeah. Would you be prepared to consider? The creation of a mutual non-aggression pact. <laughs> Mometa.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I think even <laughs> what I loved about it too, I love the fact that they just kind of headlong address one of the biggest pet peeves of all Trek fans, mm-hmm. which is this whole Universal Translator thing, you Yeah, know? yeah <laughs> It's like yeah. this amazing thing where it's like th- there's never been, as far as I know, and I feel like I've watched every single episode of almost every single uh, iteration— They've never actually explained the the universal translator. They Mm -hmm. never, Mm -hmm. they've never, it's never, you know, I I, I think maybe it malfunctioned once or twice in some, you know, in some of the episodes or whatever. I feel like something that happened once, but there's never any attempt to actually explain how this thing works or or even where it is. Like, where is the fucking <laughs> right. Universal Translator? Because it works in a hot tub. Yeah. Uh, do you know what I mean? It's all around <laughs> it's like, Oh, it's yeah. Like, is it an implant? I don't know. It's just so crazy. <laughs> and why does it work for the other alien, too? Like, I get that maybe it works for me because, it, like, it's implanted in my brain. Nothing about the Universal right. Translator makes sense sure. except for the efficacy, you know. Yeah. Back then, you couldn't make up languages like yeah. you do now nowadays, mm. you know. It has since become a gimme for... Just about every science fiction show. Yeah, you just like Doctor go. Who. I
2: think like every, <laughs> every show that, that visits, that's a lot of people visiting alien
1: races. It's all like, don't worry. This is all taken care <laughs> of. Yeah, yeah, we got it figured out. <laughs> Everybody's yeah. fine. Don't worry about yeah. it. Um, but in this one, what I loved is that, you know, rather than actually go through the trouble of explaining the universal translator, mm-hmm. they talk about sort of the fundamental problem with the mm-hmm. very concept of a universal translator because – Translation is not—even when you're talking about earth languages, Mm -hmm. translation is never about taking a word and then just simply finding its English equivalent. Mm -hmm. That's not how it works. I mean, I think about sort of my native language, Persian. In Persian, the verb— Is the last word in a sentence. Mm -hmm. So a sentence can have seventy six words in it, Mm -hmm. and until the seventy seventh (laughs) word, you don't know what the verb is. You don't
3: know what they're going, eating, running, or having. Yeah. (laughs) So
1: there's no like how there's no universal translator that would work there because you would have to wait until all seventy seven words were done. (laughs) Right. And then the verb. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, I get it. Okay. So here's what you just here's what he just said. Yeah. Um. And in this case, I love that they, I mean, it's not the most you know intriguing part of the episode by any means, but it is this kind of cool little gimme where they're like, yeah, we get it that you guys don't understand how this works and we're going to show you the problems mm-hmm. inherent in this you know <laughs> technology that we will never, ever explain. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> They don't
3: have to. We all accept it now. You
1: all accept it. It's fine. Yeah. And in this particular case, of course, like any linguist will tell you that language is fundamentally, metaphors, mm-hmm. right? Beyond just sort of the the allegories that we use in, in a community to express important ideas, mm-hmm. um, just the very sentence itself, the words that I'm using are symbolic for sentiments, right? That's mm-hmm. why they have multiple meanings. That's mm-hmm. why I can say dude in 17 different tones, Mm -hmm. and you know exactly what I mean. Or Mandarin is a perfect example Mm -hmm. uh, of this. You know, any Mandarin speakers or people who have tried to to speak, you know, Mandarin know that it's not necessarily the word, but how you say the word that the meaning comes out of. And so, you know, all of that stuff came into this episode in these really fascinating ways. And then... That wasn't even the coolest part of the episode. Well, tell us the coolest part. We can't wait.
3: I mean, I have a bunch of questions, but I feel like you could just, you could just tell me what I want to hear.
1: Well, look, I, I think for someone like myself who studies religions for a, a living, I'm embroiled in an academic discipline that has no definition. I think people don't really realize this, that there is literally— no universally accepted definition of the word religion in religious studies, mm-hmm. right? Mm. So, you know, you get like five or six um, scholars of religion together. They're hampered by the fact that they have five or six different definitions of what religion actually is. This has been a problem for you know, two, three hundred years mm. now in in this field. It used to be that when we said the word religion, people would say, "Oh, you mean you know a system that believes in gods and goddesses?" And it's like, well, no, because Jainism doesn't believe in gods or goddesses, and Theravada Buddhism doesn't believe in gods and goddesses, and those are religions. We're like, all right, well, that doesn't work. <laughs> okay, so how about just. Um, uh, spirits? How about a a a, a, um, a religion that believes in spirits, or let's say the supernatural? How about that? A religion is a, a system that uh, believes in the supernatural. Well, Taoism doesn't believe in mm. supernatural, and that's that's a you know religion. I mean, Scientology doesn't believe in in the supernatural, and yes, that's a religion. No matter what you all think, it <laughs> is a religion. Let it go. Um, and so that doesn't work. So we are really hampered <laughs> in my chosen discipline by the fact that there is no accepted definition. And so one of the the major sort of challenges that each scholar has is to develop a definition themselves. Now, we obviously rely on each other, we rely on sort of the greats that have preceded us, you know, we we pick and choose and sometimes we just borrow um wholesale. But for me when it came time during my graduate work To really begin this process to say, okay, if I'm going to move any further in this (laughs) field, I should come up with my own definition. The definition that I chose was in many ways influenced by the Dharmak episode that I watched, you know, many, many years before. My definition of religion, one that I've published and written about and one that, you know, uh, happily has now sort of been adopted by other people is a – institutionalized system of symbols and metaphors that provide a common language for a community of faith to communicate with each other and to themselves the ineffable experience of being. Yes, I understand. Finally, that's very a simple lovely. definition.
3: <laughs> I feel like just,
1: there's the uh, nutshell. There it is.
3: <laughs> you also could have been talking about Improv. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, people so, are as fanatical about uh, it. But here's the thing: is that that, albeit somewhat tortured definition, does two very important things. It has nothing to do with gods or goddesses or belief mm-hmm. systems or anything mm-hmm. like that. I don't say anything about belief systems right. at all. And number two it expands beyond sort of our more traditional ideas of what religion is because nowadays, you know, what scholars get really excited about is this notion of, well, is sports a religion? Mm. Is Star Trek a religion? Mm. Um, you know, what is a religion? And so my definition is expansive enough where it actually encompasses these other traditionally non quote-unquote, religious activities Mm -hmm. that have come to take on a lot of the patina of religion because fundamentally, it all comes back to this one thing, a language of communication made up of symbols and metaphors. And like any kind of language, it requires individuals to be familiar with the deep meaning behind those symbols and metaphors. And there is where the connection to the greatest Star Trek episode of all time comes, right? What you have is this alien race. They speak in not just metaphor, but I guess more precisely the word would be allegory, right? Because what they are doing is taking moments of their mythical past and using those moments in its shortened form, the, 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 the sort of simplest way to deliver the sentiment in order to express profound ideas and emotions. Dharmak and Jalad at Tanagra, right? We understand those words, but because we don't have access to the myth, mm-hmm. it means nothing to us mm-hmm. at all.
0: Rai and Jiri at Lunga. Saka. When the walls fell. Dharmak. Mirab. Tamak. The
1: river Tamar. I mean, I have given this lecture <laughs> about a thousand times. Yeah. I mean, not about Dharmak and Jalad, but about this idea mm-hmm. of religion is all about understanding what the metaphor means. And once you understand what the metaphor means, that becomes the key yeah. to to unlocking the sentiment behind it.
3: Yeah, so the language, for those who maybe haven't seen the episode as recently or ever seen it, is basically it's made up of a person doing an activity usually at a place and if you don't know two out of three of those like you may know what the activity is you know i believe one of them is tenba his arms open or his right. arms wide yeah. that signifies giving or handing something <laughs> over to someone so if you don't know who temba was or what his arms were doing there or why he was there or you know dharmak and Jalat on the ocean is another one they say like if you don't know what happened on the ocean you can't begin to infer the meaning of the what they're trying to convey in the current moment.
2: Yeah, one of my favorites is Shaka when the walls fell. Yes. Where it's like—
3: Signifies failure. Yeah,
2: yeah. But if if you don't have—if oh you have no frame of reference for those— Yeah. For Shaka or the walls. Right. Or why they're falling. Yeah. You know, you don't know. Maybe it's good. Yeah. Was that
1: great? Who's yeah. Shaka? Maybe she was mean. Now, now think about this for a minute. If I said um, to you, this thing looks about as as stable as Jericho's walls—
3: Mm-hmm.
1: That makes sense mm-hmm. because in our mythology, we are familiar with the walls of Jericho and the fact that they came tumbling down. I'm like, you know. I know the song, so right. I know they yeah. came down. <laughs> That's all you, yeah. need yeah, 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 exactly. you need to know. What you need to know. So, so now, now let's over the course of thousands of years, strip that down to just Jericho's walls. Mm. And yeah. if I just said, you know, how do you feel about this place, Jericho's walls? Mm. You kno- I just told you something, right? Because mm-hmm. you understand the myth. Mm-hmm. If I said to you. Sauron's
3: eye. <laughs> no clue. Oh no. Am I not See? from our shared cultural <laughs> mythology? I don't no, know our history. Kind of
1: embarrassed for you right now. I know. Actually. I feel really
3: sad. Wait, yeah. I have one. Oh, wait. Tell me what that is and then I'll give you one. Uh, the Lord of the Rings.
1: Yeah. Uh, oh, the yeah. Eye, is that good? The eye of Sauron. <laughs> the eye of Sauron. Right. The point is, is that that's a metaphor. It's not a thing. It just mm-hmm. represents something. But if mm-hmm. I said the eye of Sauron is on you, mm-hmm. you know, and you understand the metaphor, you understand the sentiment, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Unless you understand the metaphor, there is nothing that that I can do to to make you understand that. Even if I told you, oh, you see, there's this series of books called The Lord of the Rings, yeah. and <clears throat> right. and anyway, um, there's this evil thing, and there's okay, yeah. So now you understand the context, right? But. The emotional connection to what I just said means nothing to mm-hmm. you at all,
3: right? I think about whenever people uh, use the term Sisyphean, or when they talk about Sisyphus's rock. Mm-hmm. Like you have to know what he was doing with the rock that's to right. understand mm-hmm. that that's someone right. is toiling at a futile task. That's right. A, a pyrrhic victory. You mm-hmm. know. Yes.
1: Mm-hmm. Juliet at the balcony. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. Yeah. It's been um, the episode. Unless you have to be familiar with that, so that you really get it. Now, that's what religion is. Mm-hmm. So. If I said, for instance, washed by the blood of the lamb, do you know what I'm saying? Sort of. Sort of? Paul? Yes, you know? I do. Yes. Okay. So Paul Paul, Paul
3: came up with a religious background. Mine was yes. loose.
1: <laughs> so this is actually a great example of this. So yeah. Paul understands it. So washed by the blood of the lamb, it's what certain Christians talk about as the lamb is Jesus. And his oh, blood, sure. his blood, it's just now it's going to be. Now I got it. No, no, no. Okay, so, you, okay, that's really, you, you were thinking, okay, here's a uh, blood shower. No, I, I like it that, was yeah, biblical, so, but I didn't
3: know what it, yeah, but please continue. It's so much
1: blood in the Bible. Yeah. yeah. It's actually, in this <laughs> particular Buck. case, interestingly enough, not biblical. It's just a thing that has arisen among a particular group of evangelical, mostly evangelical Christians, Protestants, ah. who uh, believe that, salvation doesn't come from works. It doesn't come from belonging to a church. It doesn't come from any of that. It simply comes from Jesus's death and that his death is the thing that cleanses you of your sins forever and gives you eternal life. Now that is a big emotional idea. Mm -hmm. And in just a few words, washed by the blood of the lamb, you express that idea. Now, If you're in my community, that means you understand my language. That means you know Mm. what my metaphors mean. So if I say washed by the blood of the lamb, Paul's like, oh, wow, we just, we had a moment, right? Mm. Like we've both been washed by the blood of the lamb. It didn't take for either of us, but we, (laughs) you know, we like, that's it. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we hit it.
3: And I'm sitting here like, okay.
1: Yeah. Gross. And, and you, you like, first of all, yeah. If you don't even have any clue about it, you're like, what? (laughs) That's disgusting. But I'm in like, your case, I respect your beliefs.
3: Have fun with that. <laughs> <yes.
1: laughs> but in your case, you did something really interesting. You said, uh, lamb, yeah, I think that I think that's kind of code for Jesus. I've, I've i think mm-hmm. I've heard that somewhere. And mm-hmm. and blood, that probably means I mean, I mean, if there's anything I remember about Jesus, is that he was he died or something, right? Well, yeah, I'm literally and, going off
3: like songs and hymns. Yeah, like I'm thinking exactly. of Lamb of God and stuff. So that's the only reason I even know. So
1: you were able to kind of figure it out. You mm-hmm. were able to say Okay, um, it took me a little while, but now I understand what you mean. But so what? You experienced it in your brain. Mm -hmm. Paul experienced it in his heart. And that's what metaphor is about. So when Data is sitting around, he's like punching things into that computer, which for some reason doesn't have a keyboard. Um, (laughs) What the hell he's punching into it? He's just like punching (laughs) shit into it. Um, And then... He's like, ooh, fascinating. They're speaking in metaphors.
0: They seem to communicate through narrative imagery, a reference to the individuals and places which appear in their mytho-historical accounts. It is necessary for us to learn the narrative.
1: He's figuring it out in his brain. Mm -hmm. Picard is figuring it out in his heart. Yeah. Right? He's on the ground, and he is living Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra.
0: You knew there was a dangerous creature on this planet, and you knew... The tale of Darmok, that a danger shared might sometimes bring two people together, you and me here at El
1: And that connection is the difference between faith, right, true religious faith, as people talk about it, and Sort of, you know, the study, the study of it.
3: Yeah, no, that is fascinating, and that is a good example because we watched both of those things play out in this episode.
1: One of the things about um,
2: speaking in allegory or metaphor, which I think speaks to where we are today with as much as we know today and as divided as people are, what I think is going on and has been going on for a long time and that I, I don't think we can ignore now is that people that are not you— are trying to tell you their stories and they're trying to tell you over and over and over again. And the thing that's, I think, holding everything up is certain people are just refusing to hear those stories. Mm. They don't want to go deeper than the thing that you're saying, it makes me uncomfortable. Mm. <laughs> I So I'm tuning it out entirely. And they don't want to go any further to realize oh, okay, this is not – you're not necessarily trying to tell me that I'm wrong or bad. You're trying to tell me your story, Mm -hmm. and if I understand your story, um, then I'll understand you better, and maybe we'll understand each other better and, you know – Before I get too corny, I'll stop. No, this sounds lovely. But yeah, but I think— I I, I want to hold hands. I just just re-watched this episode not that long ago, and I was really—that idea really struck me that Mm -hmm. that seems to be where things are now. I mean, one of the things that I love is seeing, you know, an alien race on the bridge of that ship doing the thing that we do in another country where you just repeat— your language louder. <laughs> louder yeah, <laughs> right. That was nice to see. And you're just yeah. like, I don't yeah. know how else to Dar- say this to you. Darmoth <laughs> oh, and Jalot at
3: Tanagra. Ah, just hands See those guys at the
2: bridge looking at each other like, <laughs> oh, what are they not getting? Ah, oh, shaka when the walls <laughs> fell. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it is, um, it also felt a little like, <laughs> like a actor exercise, a little oh, bit. Oh, yeah. A little misnery, like you're yes. just repeating the same uh-huh, weird yeah. phrases uh-huh. back and forth. I
2: absolutely wondered, <laughs> I have not looked this up, but if, if for those actors, if in the script, it, if there was, if it was written in English and it right. was like, here's what you're
1: trying to communicate, subtext, you yeah. know, or if it was just like, hey, good luck, guys. <laughs> yeah. But you know what, Paul, what, what you're saying is really interesting because the fundamental truth about metaphor is that its meaning rests solely in the individual who uses it. Uh-huh. Metaphors don't have a set meaning, right? Mm-hmm. right. Their meanings are not fixed. Mm-hmm. Their meanings are variable. And so how you use it is all about who you are and the meaning behind it. A perfect example of, of, of this, right? You're white. You're sort of lower middle class. You are, are feeling left behind by the dramatic... Racial and economic changes that are taking Mm. place in your country, you feel as though you don't belong anymore. The privileges that you had assumed for all of your life are no longer uh, under assumption. And more interestingly, they seem to be far from being a benefit. They seem to be a disadvantage Mm -hmm. Um, and you feel frustrated. You feel alone alone. Uh, and you don't know how to express the complexity of what I just said, and so someone gives you a metaphor. Make America great again. And now, because you're surrounded by a community of like-minded individuals, all of whom feel the same way as you, and the same way of washed by the blood of the lamb, you can say to someone, make America great again. Yeah, make America great again. And the two of you have now formed a bond. But of course, if you are... Let's say an Iranian Muslim immigrant who has had, you know, whatever decade after decade of being shat upon by those same people make America great again has a totally different meaning. Mm-hmm. You, t- you say, make America great again to me, and I say, fuck you, asshole. <laughs> right. You know? When you don't disagree with the
3: definition, you disagree with the way it's being used in the connotation. Right. Mm-hmm.
1: Metaphors have nothing to do with definition. That's perfectly way of putting it. There is no, mm-hmm. there's no denotation mm-hmm. to a metaphor. It's a 100% connotation. Mm-hmm. And the connotation rests solely in the individual. Mm-hmm. And so, again, you have these two captains Right. Who are both locked in this, you know, (laughs) very complicated first contact um, experience, which is wrought with all kinds of difficulties and some real dire consequences could come from that. And the idea that the Temerian captain is so committed to this contact, yeah, in a way that Picard is not. Mm-hmm. You know? No, he's like, I'm gonna yeah. figure this out. I'm going get he's out, he's out of here. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna. Can I write about this somewhere? Yeah. Um, You know, is there a <laughs> is there a hot chick in this episode? <laughs> no. Um. Anyway, so he is willing to do whatever it takes, including to sacrifice himself, not mm. in order to convey the meaning right of this thing he could just help they could figure it out I mean Data's gonna figure it out eventually by Act act 3 Data's got it Uh but instead to understand the significance of it I want you to feel what this myth means Mm -hmm. not just know what this myth means
3: and that's the truth that's how he's able to command use of the language and go back to the Temerians and speak the language back to them
1: the beast of Tanagra,
0: Uzani his army. Shaka
3: when the walls fell. Because he has felt it and lived it and has a full understanding of and how they to use. They get it, it. right? Yeah. They
1: get it. Like if Data, if Data had shown up and said the exact same words at the end of the episode that mm-hmm. Picard says, it would not have had the same effect. The emotion behind it is mm-hmm. what is being conveyed, right? Mm-hmm. That the full significance of it. The other thing that I think is sort of b- beautiful about this episode and also presents a truism of myth and religion is that myths are not fixed. Myths are by definition in a constant state of evolution because they are constantly adapting to the needs of the community. Mm, and so sure. as the community changes, as the as its needs change, the myth changes in order to accommodate it. Now, this is obviously made a lot more sense in the 100,000 years or so before we started writing things down. Right. You know, we mm-hmm. only started writing in, in about 3200 BC and writing it down obviously sort of fixed it in place. But even then, like, you you look at, for instance, our, our ancient flood stories, mm-hmm. you know, those flood stories are constantly changing depending on who is writing it down mm-hmm. because the situation has changed for those mm-hmm. people. And so in that last moment, right, this beautiful, perfect episode of Star Trek, that last moment just enters the stratosphere of great episodes of TV because at that last moment the first officer says.
0: And, at Drill.
1: and it's like that myth, that foundational myth has now shifted mm-hmm. slightly. And it's just—I mean, I, I honestly, I am not I'm not sure who wrote this episode, but they must have some kind of, you know, background in in religion or mythology because that was just beautifully—that's yeah, beautifully a particularly
2: put stirring moment, like an amazing ending
3: mm-hmm. to that episode. Mm-hmm. That episode was written by Joe Minoski. Yeah, way to go, Joe! Way to go, Joe! He's written for lots of things since, including Discovery. Okay, I want to ask you a couple quick things about Trek and religion in general. Sure. Do you think that Trek takes a position on religion, knowing that, of course, Gene Roddenberry was a pretty committed atheist? Do you think there is a position of Trek as a whole on religion?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it does go back not just to Gene Roddenberry's own personal opinions, but it goes back to the era out of which Star Trek arose. You know, the 60s and 70s were a time of, I think, rapid scientific discovery. And also a time in which some of our most basic religious assumptions were being questioned, if not overturned. And I think that in that era, what you heard a lot was this thesis that eventually we're going to get rid of religion. That religion Mm -hmm. is a a problem, is a social ill more than anything else. They sort of operate – I mean it's it's hinted that – They're
2: living in a post-religious society. Right, right, exactly. In the way that they're living in a post-money society. Yes, yes, These are relics of the past. These are
1: relics of the past. I would say that in the era in which Star Trek arose, that was the prevailing sentiment for the intellectual class. I mean, there were entire books written about the Mm -hmm. death of God and the end of religion. The assumption of the 20th century was that as society – becomes more technologically advanced, as it becomes wealthier, as Mm -hmm. it becomes more highly educated, as more people pass from the lower class to the middle class, religion will become less and less a factor. And more importantly, as science begins to answer some of the questions of religion, then religion will become obsolete. And I think for Roddenberry, when he imagined, you know, a distant future – that's the assumption that he had. No one in their right mind makes those claims any longer because they have all proven to be spectacularly false. First and foremost, we know now for a fact that there is no inverse correlation between economic or social progress and religion, quite the contrary, that the movement from lower class to middle class actually results in more religion, not less religion. The World Catholic Encyclopedia, which has for quite some time now maintained a you know, fairly um, debatable survey on world religiosity, but at least they're counting. I think a lot of <laughs> scholars—I think some scholars would say, <laughs> I'm not sure if their data mm. set is, is, you know, meticulous. Right. But, you know, they are maintaining a, a data set. What they discovered was at the dawn of the 20th century, something like a quarter to a third of the world's population identified with one of the five major religions— 100 years of social and scientific advancement and technological advancement and rapid secularism, and that number is now between one-half and two-thirds. We are becoming not more religious, but we are more likely to identify ourselves in religious terms in large parts of the world, despite the fact that the global population is becoming more scientifically advanced, more economically advanced, more um, technologically literate. And more importantly, here's the kind of the flip side of that, is that as scientific progress continues to answer, you know, some of the, the most basic questions of the nature of reality, far from diverging further and further from religion, what we have noticed is that it's starting to weirdly converge. With religion. I can give you a whole host of examples of this, but the best example is just the very foundation of the laws of nature, which is the conservation of matter and energy, right? The notion that everything that exists today has always existed and will always exist as long as the universe exists. Well, Sufi mystics have been saying that for a thousand years. (laughs) And in many ways, even the language, about the nature of reality, the oneness and unity of all reality that you start hearing, you know, at the, at the very most theoretical levels of, of physics is starting to mimic the language that we would hear sort of great mystics of the past use. I am of the opinion that when you look into the distant future, the future that, you know, Roddenberry presented to us. The
2: future of like a, a united earth, yes, let's say before we even get to the Federation of Planets, but that
1: that Earth as a whole says we are Earth. Precisely. What you are going to see is not the eradication of religion or the complete disassociation of religion from society or even more, the complete separation of religion and science. You're going to see the exact opposite. You're going to see the convergence of religion and science. If you ask me what will religion look like 200, 300 years from now, My answer is, we'll just call it science. There Mm -hmm. won't be a difference between religion and science, that they will be the same thing. And that's primarily because they answer two different questions, right? Religion and science, in the end, are really two modes of knowing. You know, science's fundamental question is how. Religion's fundamental question is why. And I can imagine this sort of utopian future in which how and why are the same question. That's not the case now. But I think for Roddenberry, a child of, you know, that generation that said, eventually we're going to get rid of this this anarchic, you know, archaic idea. Mm -hmm. He saw the future and he thought, well, that would only work if you got rid of religion. And I think that that is the fundamental flaw of the Star Trek universe, right? The entire Star Trek mythology is, in some ways, predicated on this false assumption, this false idea. By the way, that's why, if you notice, on so many episodes, it's always the alien races that have religions, yeah. mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. yeah. they're backward, <laughs> right? right? They've yeah, right. got religion, but we don't. Or
3: even if it's not treated as backward, you know, like the Klingons, the Bajorans, they all have their belief systems that are, like, heavily talked about and... Mm. um yeah, but you're right. It's never people in the Federation. Right. I know you want to be a captain, but I think you're you're giving me strong Deanna Troy vibes. That's a compliment. You're giving me like a good like. I want you if I was captaining a ship, like you're my counselor, so that I can be like counselor. What do you think?
1: What I do you s- think's going on here? I I, I sense some hesitation. on
3: Yeah, but you'll you'll have even more to say. I loved how Counselor Troy was always just like they seem. Happy.
1: It's like, yeah, we yeah. know. Yeah. He's smiling. Yeah. We Thank get you. It. Thank you, Deanna.
3: <laughs> He's not
2: telling us the whole story. Yeah. Oh, think? This shifty guy? Yeah. yeah.
3: You think this maybe? dude rubbing his hands together menacingly, you think?
2: Yeah. Uh, so Reza, you said you would be
1: willing, you'd love to be a red shirt on Are you kidding? an iteration it's like of Star Trek. At the top of my bucket list. <laughs> you know I, right. I have i have a number of things on my bucket list and and i'm happy to say that some of them you know have been have been uh, accomplished number 1 i Fantastic. always i always wanted to be a, a jeopardy uh, question that Yay, happened congrats. that was uh, that was exciting i always wanted to be a new york times crossword question <gasps> that happened yeah. literally there's one thing left on my bucket list and that is to be a red shirt <gasps> on on any iteration but when you say redshirt you mean you would like to get killed on a on an episode of yes. Star Trek. Oh, we're talking yeah. Old, yeah.
3: old old terminology yeah. like for a red shirt Act, act
1: one. It. You know. Look, if I survive, fantastic. Sure, but sure, I'm more sure. than happy to 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 take a phaser for someone. Right. You know. I'm oh. like that's hell. I'll I'll you know I'll sit through six hours of prosthetics if that's what it takes. I'll. Well, you just I, listen. Whoever's out there and who has any any say in this, <laughs> they're please. they're in here. They're in the room. <laughs> please, people, call me. Somebody, call me. Uh, okay, well, we have your phone number, so
3: someone <laughs> may or may not be calling you soon. Well, Reza, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for talking to us. My um, pleasure. Where can people find you, listen to
1: you, read you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook, Twitter at Reza Aslan, Facebook Reza Aslin Official. You can uh, listen to my own podcast. Am I allowed to, to plug a podcast course, on someone else's podcast? plug whatever you Tours. want. Yeah, metaphysical That's what
2: podcasts are all about. Yeah. Metaphysical
1: Milkshake on on Luminary. And then I also host a talk show called Rough Draft where I interview writers over cocktails. And uh, that is on Topic and Topic.com.
3: Fantastic. Oh, fantastic. That sounds great. I, I love a cocktail-based talk chat. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: <laughs> Reza, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Live long and prosper.
3: Well, Paul, I sure learned a lot today. How about you?
2: I did, but unfortunately, I retained nothing. I have retention problems. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, so we'll I'm, call Reza. I'm dumb again. We'll do
3: this all over again. Yeah. Okay. Good news. Good news.
2: Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, we'll be back next Monday. Until then, please like and subscribe. Tell a friend about the show.
3: Yeah. Remember, you can get this uh, wherever you get your podcasts. So, you know. Dive right in. Take a listen. Come hang with us.
2: We'll see you next Monday, LLAP.
3: Want more Trek?
2: If you live in the U.S., go to CBS All Access for classic episodes of Star Trek, the original series.
3: Star Trek The Next Generation.
2: Star Trek Deep Space
3: Nine. Star Trek Voyager. And
2: Star Trek Enterprise. And new
3: seasons of Star Trek Discovery. And Star Trek Picard. In Canada, watch Star Trek Discovery and Star Trek Picard on Bell Media's CTV Sci-Fi channel.
2: Star Trek Discovery streams on Netflix in 188 countries. And
3: Star Trek Picard does the same on Amazon Prime.
2: Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.